body. Let's finish up strong. So this is a continuation of the 10 ways the Bible is influenced by the religion. So I left off at eight. The book of Proverbs. There are a large number of striking similarities between the book of Proverbs and the Bible and the Egyptian instruction of Amena Amenemope. Wait a minute, that's the word amen in it. Amenemope. Hmm, maybe there's correlation to that word amen, I'm guessing. The all surviving text of the instruction of Amenemope are of a later day, later date. The works are thought to have been composed during the 12th dynasty. There have been much debate on this topic, but modern scholars agree that there is enough compelling evidence. <coughs> Excuse me. There have been much debate on this topic, but modern scholars agree that there is enough compelling evidence to support the originality of the instructions of men and most. Here are a few examples of parallel verses. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17 to 18. Incline thy ear and hear the words of the wise. And apply thy heart to my doctrine, which shall be beautiful for thee. If thou keep it in thy bowels, and it shall flow in thy lips. Amenemope chapter 1. Give thine ear and hear what I say, and apply thine heart to apprehend. It is good for thee to, to place them in thine heart. Let them rest in the casket of thy belly, that they may act as a peg upon thy tongue. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 22. Do no violence to the poor because he is poor, and do not oppress the needy in the gate. And then Amopa chapter 1, beware of robbing the poor and oppressing the afflicted. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 1. When thou shalt sit to eat with a prince, consider diligently what is set before thy face. Menomope chapter 23. Eat not bread in the presence of a ruler, and lunch not for it with thy mouth before a governor. When thou art replenished with that to which thou hast no right, is only delight to thy spittle. Look upon the dish that is before thee, and let that alone supply the, thy need. So the fortitude confessions of my act and the instruction of Minimope are inspirations of the book of Proverbs and the Ten Commandments. A lot of believers would be upset about that, but it's true. Okay, and then why does it say he? Just say people, because we don't want to be uh, gender biased or any disrespect like that. Number seven, the Ten Commandments. In the Bible, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. On Mount Sinai were written on stone tablets allegedly by the hand of God himself. This is thought to take place around 1490 BC. However, when one examines chapter 125 of the Egyptian Book of the Dead around 2600 BC, 20, 20, this is uh, BC. It seems he may have had a little help. This is 2600 BC. It seems he may have had a little help. The Egyptian Book of the Dead reads like the Ten Commandments written in negative confession. Some examples are Book of the Dead. 
I have not blasphemed. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord his God in vain. And it says, um, Book of the day I have not stolen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Thou shalt not steal. Book of the day I have not committed adultery. I have not blamed with men. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's also some similarity between the story of the Ten Commandments and the Code of Hammurabi, dated around 1770 BCE. Now, let's look at the comparisons of the Ten Commandments in the Bible and the 42 Confessions of Mot, or, or it's also called the 42 Laws of Mayat, actually, Egyptian virtues. Mayat is the ancient Egyptian goddess of truth, balance, and order. She is most often depicted as a woman with wings or a single white ostrich feather. When the deceased goes to afterlife, the Egyptians believe that their hearts would be weighed against this feather. If the individual lived a good life, following the rules of Mayat, their heart would be lighter than a feather and they would get to go to the afterlife. However, if that individual did not follow the rules of Mayat, they would have a happy heart. Weighed down by the guilt of their transgressions, as a result, their heart would be devoured by Amut, and the soul would be destroyed. The laws of Mayat are called the 42 Negative Confessions, and they were revealed in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, or the Papyrus of Ani, a book that was written more than 3,000 years ago. The 42 Negative Confessions, I have not committed sin, I have not committed robbery with violence. I have not stolen, I have not slain men and women, I have not stolen food, I have not swindled offerings, I have not stolen from God, I have not told lies. I have not carried away food, I have not cursed, I have not closed my eyes to truth, I have not committed adultery, I have not made anyone cry, I have not felt sorrow without reason, I have not assaulted anyone, I am not deceitful, I have not stolen anyone's land, I have not been an eavesdropper, I have not falsely accused anyone, I have not been angry without reason, I have not seduced anyone's wife, I have not polluted myself, I have not terrorized anyone, I have not disobeyed the law, I have not been excessively angry, I have not cursed God, I have not behaved with violence, I have not caused disruption of peace, I have not acted hastily without thought, I have not overstepped my boundaries of concern, I have not exaggerated my words when speaking, I have not worked evil, I have not used evil thoughts, words, or deeds, I have not polluted the water, I have not spoken angrily or arrogantly, I have not cursed anyone's thought, word, or deed, I have not placed myself on a pedestal, I have not stolen that which belongs to God, I have not stolen from or disrespected the deceased. I have not taken food from a child. I have not acted with insolence. I have not destroyed property belonging to God. In recent years, a list of 42 ideals were written as a parallel to the negative confession. Some modern practitioners of the ancient Egyptian ways like to repeat these 42 ideals in the morning and evening as a way to encourage these ideals in themselves. Chanting was an important part of spirituality in ancient Egypt. It was believed that if you chanted something often enough that the words would become a part of your being. I guess there really is something to encouraging positive thinking. The 42 ideals, I honor virtue. I benefit with gratitude, I am peaceful, I respect the property of others, I affirm that all life is sacred, I give offerings that are genuine. I live in truth, I regard all altars with respect, I speak with sincerity, I consume only my fair share, offer words of good intent, I relate in peace, I honor animals with reverence, I can be trusted, I care for the earth, I keep my own counsel. I speak positively of others. I remain in balance with my emotions. I am trustful in my relationships. I hold purity and high esteem. I spread joy. I do the best I can. I communicate with compassion. I listen to opposing opinions. I create harmony. I invoke laughter. I'm open to love. 
I'm open to love and various forms. I am forgiving. I am kind. I act respectfully. I act respectfully of others. I am accepting. I follow my inner guidance. I converse with awareness. I do good. I give blessings. I keep the waters pure. I speak with good intent. I praise the goddess and the god. I'm humble. I achieve with integrity. I advance through my own abilities. I embrace the all. Now you're gonna definitely see the parallels of what I'm talking about in terms of the Ten Commandments. They understand that religion doesn't come up with things on their own. The Ten Commandments are summarized as one, you shall have no other gods before God, you shall not make or worship graven images, you shall not take God's name in vain, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, lie, you shall not covet. In some cases, they say don't covet your neighbor, neighbor's wife. And I'll read it again in a different version. Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 17 in New King James Version. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me for showing mercy to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not withhold will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and the rest of the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor. So now you understand exactly that the Ten Commandments was taken from the Egyptian Book of the Dead and 42 Laws of Mayat. And I'm ruffling believers' feathers, but there, come on, it, it's no coincidence. Okay. So let's talk about um, the Code of Hammurabi that I just mentioned. It basically says offenses against administration of law, false charges, false testimony, falsification of judgment. So the property offenses are stealing, receiving stolen property, kidnapping, harboring fugitive slaves, breaking and entering, burglary, looting, burning houses. So the land and houses, tenure of 
FIES, F-I-F-E-S, duties of farmers, debts of farmers, irrigation offenses, cattle trespass, cutting down trees, care of date or orchards, offenses connected with houses. So you have commerce, loans and trade, and keeping fraud by couriers, distraint, distraint and pledge your person for debt, safe custody or deposit. You have marriage, family, and property, slander of UG, baptism, priestesses, or married women, definition of married woman, adultery, remarriage, and husband's absence, divorce, marriage to Naditum women, maintenance of sick wives, gifts from husbands to wives, liability of spouses for debt, murder of husbands, incest, inchoate marriage, devolution of marriage, gifts after wives to death, gift of sons, enter vivos, succession. Monk's sons, disinheritance of sons, legitimation, widows as property, marriage of a willow class women as slaves, marriage of widows, sacral women, adoption, and nursing of infants. And you have assault, assaults on fathers, assaults on Iwilian class, class women, assaults causing miscarriage. Ooh. Then you have slaves, warranties on sale of slaves, purchase of slaves abroad. Wage of craftsmen, hire of boats, that's rates of hire. Agriculture, oxen, theft of fodder by tenants, hire of agricultural laborers, theft of agricultural implements, hire of herdsmen, duties of shepherds, hire of beasts and wagons, hire of seasonal laborers, you have professional men, surgeons, veterinary surgeons, barbers, builders, shipbuilders, and boatmen. So, again, There's similarity between the Third Ten Commandments and the Code of Hammurabi did around 1772 BC. Come on, man. And the Code of Hammurabi is a Babylonian legal text composed circa 1755 to 1750 BC. It is the longest, best organized, best preserved legal text in the ancient Near East. It is written in the Old Babylonian dialect of Akkadian. Purportedly by Hammurabi, sixth king of the first dynasty of Babylon, the primary copy of the text inscribed on a basalt or diorite, note one, steel, 2.25 meters, 7 feet, 4 and a half inches tall. Mm. Six, the Canaanites. The origin of the Israelite nation is a little vague since biblical accounts don't always agree with archaeological evidence. According to the Bible, the Canaanites were a tribe of people who descended from Ham, the son of Noah. They were thought to be a cursed nation that the Israelites destroyed. However, conquest of that simple is widely accepted that the Canaanite religion had numerous influences on Judaism. Psalms chapter 29 is a hymn that bears so much similarity to Algaritic, the language of the Canaanites' poetry, that some believe that it was originally a hymn to Baal. Today, scholars agree that the Israelites emerged from the Canaanite civilization in the early part of the second millennium BC. So, that's what I mean about religions tend to copy history and try to make it their own history. And they'll word it slightly differently to go, see, this is all of our origination is from God. This is originality. Like, that's not how it works. Number five, Isaiah. There's an interesting correlation between the Gathas of Zarathustra, Yasna, the sacred text of the Zoroastrians, 
in the chapter of creation and book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. This can be largely attributed to the influence that the Mesopotamians held over the Israelites during the time the Israelites were living in Babylon. Strangely, the book of Yasna asks questions which are answered directly in the book of Isaiah. There are countless other examples of influences from Zoroastrianism, but this one is very compelling. Some examples of the similarities text are Yasna chapter 44, Yasna 44.3, Yasna chapters 44.3, verses 4 through 5. Who made the routes of the sun and stars, by whom the moon waxes and wanes? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 46. Lift up your eyes on high, and see who hath created these things. Who bringeth out their hosts by number, and calleth them all by their names, by the greatness of his might and strength and power. Not one of them was missing. Yasna chapter 44.4, verses 1 through 3. Who fixed the earth below, and keep the sky above from falling? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and weighed the heavens with his palm? Who hath posed with three fingers the bulk of the earth and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Again, more ripoffs. Number four, angels and demons. It must be clear by now that there was a number of ways that Judaism and Christianity have been influenced by Zoroastrianism. One of the primary examples is the existence structure and hierarchy of the angels and demons. According to scholars, the Zoroastrians were the first to believe in angels' idea of Satan and the ongoing battle between the forces of good and evil. Interestingly, Zoroastrian art portrays the prophet Zoroastra as being surrounded by the same halo of light which Christian figures are often depicted. Three, heaven and uh, uh, you see, that's why I don't practice a religion. I don't know which one is true, which one is false. Number three, heaven and hell. Along with the idea of good and evil, the concept of heaven and hell seems to predate Judaism as well. Once again, we go back, we go back to Zoroastrianism and Persian influence. The prophet Daniel was the first biblical figure to refer to ideas of resurrection and judgment. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. This can be easily attributed to Babylonian influence. The word paradise comes directly from the Persian religion of Mithraism. The word hell seems to derive from the Norse word hell, H-E-L, most certainly a pre-Christian concept. There are countless examples of hell-like afterlives portrayed in pagan mythology. Yes, Christianity is a pagan religion. They celebrate Christmas, which is a pagan holiday. Some Christians celebrate Halloween and do things on Halloween during their ministry nights at the church, and Halloween is pagan. In the New Testament, there are four different words used to describe hell, all of which have been translated into English as hell. They are Sheol, which means place of the dead, Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, Gehenna, a kind of garbage dump, and Tartar, which means to cast or throw. It's before BC. The fact that you have to have that in the years BC, hmm. So BC means, in this case, before Christianity, Christianity broke one of their Ten Commandments by stealing from other schools of thought of the pious persuasion. 
Mm. Number two, the Trinity. While the New Testament definitely mentions the concepts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it makes no actual mention of the word Trinity, and there is still some contention as to whether the Trinity Godhead is a biblical thing. Judaism teaches pure monotheism, while Catholicism favors the Trinity concept. Yet it is clearly a concept that was influenced by pagan religions existing at the time that Christianity came about. Examples of pagan trinities are Amon, Ra, and of Egyptian mythology, Anu, Enlil, and Ea of Sumerian mythology, and Ishtar, Baal, and Tammuz of Babylonian mythology. And I like to say it again, Constantine and the bishops and the religious crew, they invented the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not Jesus. And the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Trinity are not even directly mentioned in the Old Testament. Heaven and hell are not directly mentioned in the Old Testament either. And Jesus is not directly mentioned in the Old Testament. Those are all problems for me. And uh, Thanksgiving is a pagan holiday, but Christians celebrate it. And these and Christians are the same people that use use pagan as a derogatory terminology for people who are not Christians, which is sickening in and of itself. And lastly, number one, aspects of the Messiah. It's interesting to note the possible influence that other religions in existence at the time of Jesus may have had on his own philosophies. While the pagan aspects of the rituals surrounding Christian celebrations can easily be explained by the fact that these rituals were intended to replace pagan practices, the similarities of philosophy can only be explained through external influence. Although the fundamental aspects of the two religions differ greatly, there are still some remarkable parallels between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddha, Mithras, and Zarathustra. Jesus, as you would as you would that men should do to you, do also to them in like manner. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. Buddha, consider others as yourself. Dhammapada, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus, and to him that striketh thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away from thee thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Luke chapter 6, verse 29. Buddha, if anyone should give you a blow with his hand, with a stick, or with a knife, you should abandon any desires to utter no evil words. Mashima Nikaya, chapter 21, verse 6. So, that also lets me know that, you know, Buddha was around before Jesus, so Jesus may have been a Buddhist. Possibly. You know, those lost years? I think it's crazy to have lost years of the most influential figure in all of humankind's history but you don't know 12 through 30 he could have been learning Buddhism during that time possibly and by the way Easter is a pagan holiday rabbits don't lay eggs I don't see that in scripture and in history again rabbits still don't lay eggs they reproduce like crazy. That's why when it comes to sex, they say fucking like a jackrabbit 
or hopping like a jackrabbit or like a jackhammer. It's still, you still think of a, a rabbit or a bunny, you know, that's a derogatory terminology they throw at women, the word bunny and referring to her promiscuity. So it's just amazing how Christians celebrate pagan holidays, including Easter. They say, what's the resurrection of Jesus? No. Y'all are pagans, but you're dishonest about it. I like ruffling feathers, as y'all already know. Of course I have more. So let me now talk about Let's talk about hell. It says, 10 religion, October 3rd, 2015. 10 biblical reasons why hell might not exist by Justin Westbrook, fact checked by Jamie Fratter. Today, many Christians believe in a place of eternal torment where sinners are sent after death, commonly referred to as hell in English. This belief is extremely mainstream and forms part of the basic perception of the religion and popular culture, which is strange because some say the evidence for eternal punishment as an integral part of the Christian religion is virtually non-existent. See what you think. Number 10, the Bible barely mentions it. Most Christian believers in the idea of hell will tell you that it's a place of punishment for sinners and evildoers. But does that idea have a scriptural basis? According to Romans chapter 6 verse 7, he that is dead is free from sin. So if a person's sins are cleared with their deaths, then what's with the additional punishment of hell? Well, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 goes on to state that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note that there is no mention of sinners being condemned to everlasting torture. They simply don't get the reward for living a righteous life. Similarly, chapter 2 verse Thessalonians similarly 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says the punishment for those being wicked is not fiery torture but destruction shout out from the presence shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might John chapter 3 verse 36 strikes roughly the same note declaring that sinners will not see eternal life meanwhile Jude chapter 1 verse 7 does mention quote eternal life but only in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah which are literally destroyed by the eternal fire of God's wrath that leaves brief mentions in the book of Revelations and two of Jesus' parables, the one Christians call Christ, as biblical basis for the fiery hell of popular imagination. More on those verses later. But if a place of eternal torment was truly intended as an integral component of Christianity, surely it's strange that the Bible never seems to pay much attention to it. I agree. And I've always hated the concept of hell when it comes to I want to create people 
capable of not following a particular religion that I say they should follow, and if not, I'm going to fry them like chicken, but they'll never stop being cooked. Wow. Number nine, endless punishment doesn't make biblical sense anyway. From a Christian perspective, the idea of hell is not only cruel and unusual, but totally excessive. Would a God described in the Bible as a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right, decide that finite punishment is just fair, is fair and just, or is just and fair? First, John chapter 4, verse 8 says that God is the very concept of love. Would a loving father eternally torture his child as punishment, even if the child did something seriously wrong? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1, famous, famously states an eye for an eye. A principle of equal punishment that seems rather out of sync with the idea of literally endless torment as retribution for the sins of a short mortal life. Now, I wrestle with the concept of hell, as I keep saying, when it comes to those who rape me, force me to sell drugs in organized crime world, and just all the ones who abused me. I go, again, I go back and forth from that every day. I, it's, it's a complex set of emotions, the complexity in terms of my thought patterns regarding the, what do I want in this torment for those who tortured me or not. Ooh, I wrestle with it so strongly that I now make peace with it. It doesn't drive me crazy like I thought it did. Um, in fact, the fiery hell of popular imagination seems even harsh after considering God's words in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 31. They have built the high places of Toph, Top Heth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command nor did it enter my mind. Yet the idea of humans being burned in fire is so unappealing to God that it never even came into his thoughts, then what's his deal with hell? That is what I, that is the same questions that I'm asking. Number eight, many references to hell were mistranslations. When it comes to misconceptions about hell, the popular 17th century King James Version, KJV, of the Bible has a lot to answer for. For example, in the KJV, the prophet Jonah was in the belly of hell while David baffling, bafflingly insists that God would be with him even in hell. Even Jesus pops down to hell after his death on the cross. This obviously makes no sense. The Bible repeatedly states that hell, whatever else it is, involves separation from God. So why is Jesus swinging by for a visit, and why is David so sure that God would be with him there? In fact, if God is with David, why would he be in hell in the first place? The answer is that the KJV lumps a whole bunch of different Greek and Hebrew words together under the English term hell. The words in question are Hades, Sheol, Tartarus, and Gehenna, and they can have very different meanings in the original context. That's particularly important to Hades and Sheol, which are roughly equivalent words in Greek and Hebrew. Neither can reasonably be translated as place of torment, which is what the word hell now generally implies. A better translation might be the grave or the afterlife. Neither term carries a value judgment in the way that hell does. Only the wicked go to hell, but all souls are in Sheol after death. So David's weird KJV claim that God will be with him in hell is better translated as the afterlife or even the depths. Well, the KJV references Jesus being in hell after the death on the cross. 
the new international version makes a much less dramatic reference to him being in his grave. In fact, the New Testament, in fact, the New International Version only refers to hell 15 times, comparing to a whopping 54 mentions in the KJV. Other modern Bibles try to avoid such problems altogether by simply leaving Sheol and Hades untranslated. Oh, this hasn't quite undone the influence of the KJV. As the Encyclopedia Americana of 1942 put it, much confusion and misunderstanding has been caused through the early translators of the Bible, persistently rendering the Hebrew Sheol and the Greek Hades and Gehenna by the word hell. The simple transliteration of these words by the translators of the revised editions of the Bible has not sufficed to, to appreciably clear up this confusion and misconception. So, when you have humans who, who can't even make original words and original context with original words unambiguous, Therefore, humans insert the ambiguity into linguistics, ancient linguistics, I should say, then that causes more suspicion in my heart. Number seven, Gehenna is controversial too. So if Hades and Sheol don't match the modern perception of hell that leaves Gehenna, the Taurus is also sometimes translated as hell. But the term only appears once in the Bible, not in relation to humans, so it has limited relevance here. Gehenna is certainly the biblical term most often rendered hell in English. For example, the New International Version of Matthew chapter 5, verse 30 states, If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Scary, right? It all comes down to the controversy over the exact meaning of Gehenna. The word itself is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew terms Gehenum and Geb. Ben Hinnom, which means Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, referred to an actual valley just outside ancient Jerusalem. The valley first appears in the Old Testament as the location of fiery pagan child sacrifices, which continue at least until 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10, which describes how Josiah ravaged the site so that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Moloch. By the time of Jesus, the term was apparently used metaphorically to refer to a place of fiery destruction. And Jesus used, it, Jesus used it 11 times in this context. It's interesting to note that Hebrew had no word for such a concept, and Jesus apparently felt no need to, to introduce one, referring to make historical allusions instead. See, even Jesus didn't directly talk about hell and our understanding of hell today. So if he didn't do that back then, that means people may have made shit uh, that's what make-believe means. Or Jesus apparently felt no need to introduce one, preferring to make a circle illusion instead, or maybe not. According to some scholars, the Valley of Gehenna had essentially become Jerusalem's incinerator by the time of Jesus, the one Christians called the Christ. It featured constantly burning fires, which consumed the city's garbage and the bodies of criminals and the disgraced. This tradition is quite old, but not supported by any real evidence or ancient accounts, although it is strange that Jesus first the bodies being destroyed in Gehenna as well as souls. In any case, none of Jesus, the one Christians call the crisis, references to Gehenna suggest any kind of eternal torment. Certainly the fires of Gehenna are described as eternal, but Jesus specifically warns that they will be used to destroy both soul and body. Removing unrighteous people from existence, as that verse suggests, doesn't sound particularly like torturing them forever. 
The second meaning can only be inferred by readers who already have that concept as hell. Yeah, religion is ambiguous, has vagueness, has complexity, gray areas, mysteries, uncertainties, fogs, um, foggy areas, it's cloudy areas, murky, muddy waters. And religion has iffiness. Okay, six. Jesus didn't invent his parable about hell. So is the idea of a fiery hell completely alien to the Bible? Not at all. It's right there in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is recorded in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. In the story, a wealthy man lives it up while ignoring a beggar named Lazarus. But the pair experience a dramatic role reversal after their deaths when Lazarus is carried off by angels to a blissful existence in the bosom of Abraham. While the rich man finds himself tormented in a blazing fire, the rich man begs Lazarus to take pity on him and bring him some water. But Abraham points out that the rich man had a great life and never took pity on Lazarus. Abraham also refers to resurrect Lazarus to warn the rich man's family to change their ways, arguing that they can choose to follow the prophets or not, but witnessing a miracle won't suddenly make them good people. This is probably the closest the Bible gets to the modern conception of hell. However, it's important to note that the Bible doesn't present it as a true story or a straightforward warning about the afterlife. Jesus, the one that the Christians call the crisis parables, are clearly fictional stories designed to convey a message. As Warren Prestick points out, the rich man and Lazarus is immediately preceded by the parable of the unjust steward, where a servant defrauds his master and gets rewarded for it. If you've ignored the deeper meaning of the parables, you, you conclude that Jesus thought stealing from your boss was great. In fact, Jesus didn't even come up with the story in the first place. Scholars have long identified the general outline. A beggar is rewarded after death, while a rich man is punished as, a, as an Egyptian folktale that became popular with Jewish religious teachers like the Pharisees to the point that early Jewish literature contains at least seven versions of it. In Luke's account, Jesus only brings the story up after the Pharisees mock his original parable of the unjust steward, thus using one of their own favorite stories to demonstrate their hypocrisy. With this context, it's hard to see the parable as a serious account of the Christian afterlife. See? They love stealing from Egypt. I don't understand why they like stealing from black folks. Hey, they were black during the ancient day. I'm just saying. If you don't believe me, look at the, or look the hieroglyphics, mummies, and that's why I believe that Jesus most likely was black. He lived in Egypt, which is in Africa, of of the dark pe of the dark people. That look like Viola Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. I'm just speaking facts. Number five, the other verses aren't conclusive either. The Bible also contains a reference to eternal fiery torture in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, which refers to a lake of burning sulfur where entities are tormented day and night forever and ever. Of course, the entities involved apparently include death and Hades, which are not actual people able to experience actual suffering. In other words, this is symbolism. Just as these aren't literal people, neither is the location they are assigned to. That leaves the parable of the sheep and the goats as found in the book of Matthew. 
In the story, which hovers somewhere between a parable and a straightforward sermon, Jesus appears to speak of the last judgment when sinners will be banished into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This section of the sermon slash parable is fairly direct and clearly not part of a fictional story like the rich man and Lazarus. This parable ends with an apparent reference to unending torment. Then the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. For these reasons, the sheep and the goats is generally considered the key Bible passage behind the popular conception of hell. However, many theologians argue that this interpretation of the sheep and the goats contradicts a number of other Bible verses, which explain the fate of the unrighteous as the last judgment as fire destruction due to the second death. The unrighteous are destroyed, they can't be tormented forever. Some biblical scholars argue that while the fire of punishment is described as eternal, that doesn't mean the wicked will be punished there for all eternity. Rather, the punishment is total destruction in the holy fire, which has always existed. In other words, eternal punishment. Ionos, I, Aionios Colasis, Colasis has lasted forever, but the punishment itself is simply immediate destruction. Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups who, who do not believe in hell go even further, arguing that the word colossus shouldn't be translated as punishment at all, citing its, der der citing its derivation from a Greek term for pruning trees they suggest that it would be that it would better be rendered cutting off destruction or even death. The last interpretation would turn Ionios colossus into eternal death, making a nice contrast with eternal life promise making a nice contrast with eternal life promise to the righteous. The pruning trees meaning also invokes John chapter 15 verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Colossus only appears twice in the New Testament, but the Old Testament in Greek uses it to refer to punishment in general and to death as a form of punishment, suggesting that eternal punishment, eternal death are both valid translations. I'm not sure... I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Number four, even the church fathers couldn't agree on hell. Since many hold the early church fathers as the authority on matters of faith and doctrine, many would find it surprising that even they couldn't agree if hell existed in themselves. What it actually was, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, the Cyprian, were among those that held that, held that hell was a literal place of fire and torment. Oregon and director of Nisa disagreed, counting that hell was simply separation from God. While the idea of eternal fiery damnation can be found as early as the apocryphal 2nd century apocalypse of Peter, it doesn't seem to have become dominant in Christian thinking until around the 5th century AD. Ironically, this view was heavily inspired by a non-Christian, the Greek philosopher and mathematician Plato, whom the French historian Georges Menios credited with the greatest influence on traditional views of hell of all the early philosophers. Plato's story of Ur features an afterlife in which sinners are punished or rewarded in proportion to their misdeeds in life. Whatever your views on hell's existence, Plato's sin-specific punishments definitely have no biblical support, but the philosopher's ideas can still be detected in many popular versions of the Christian afterlife, most notably Dante's Inferno. I read that to you all. By the way, Moses, not... Moses was definitely black. Um, and any important biblical figure who was in Egypt, they had to be black. There's a black presence in the Bible. Look at all the tribes. They were black-skinned people. And... If you see all the ites, 
tribes in the Bible, they look like Ken and Cal. Um, watch the movie Good Burger so you can know what they look like. Uh, so Joseph and Mary were black too. They were in Egypt. Think about it. So they had black relatives. In modern times, many Christian denominations have moved away from St. Augustine's conception of hell as a physical place beneath the earth. Even the venerable Catholic Church has apparently decided to go with the flow with the catechism of the Catholic Church approved by Pope John Paul II, 1992, declaring that hell is simply a state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. So they don't, uh, they, they can't even have discernment on what separation from God means temporal and eternal. They have no fucking idea. Number three, some aspects of hell seem distinctly non-Christian. Plato might have had the greatest role, but non-Abrahamic influences on hell date back as long, a long way before the Greeks pioneered philosophy. The ancient Egyptian religion, for example, featured a cavern containing a lake of fire where the souls of the wicked were punished for their transgressions. The early Mesopotamians also believed that the underworld lay underground, although it was more dim and miserable than a place of eternal punishment. A particularly interesting comparison could be made between the popular idea of hell and Zoroastrianism, an ancient religion originated in what is now Iran. In the earliest Zoroastrian text, the souls of the sinful are judged after death and condemned to eternal punishment in the underworld, which the book of Arda Varaf describes as a pit full of fire, smoke, stench, and demons. The souls are tortured according to the severity of their sins in life, and the whole thing is presided over by Angra Manu. The great evil spirit who, who ever ridiculed and mocked the wicked in hell for following him instead of their creator God. That sounds remarkably like the hell of modern pop culture. What's just as remarkable is how many of those details have no basis in the Bible. The Rastrian hell is staffed by demons and ruled by a devil figure, whereas the Christian devil and his followers have no role in the afterlife, nor the one group clearly stated to be destined for punishment in Tartarus. There's certainly no reason to believe that a Christian hell would make the punishment fit the crime. Whereas the demons of Zoroastrianism seem to delight in devising inventive tortures for each particular sin. In fact, the book of Arda Varath is distinctly reminiscent of Dante's Inferno. I'm telling you, man, they don't have solid, concrete, this is hell. Okay, this is a, maybe this is the wrong thing to call it, or we don't know the duration. They don't even know the duration of an afterlife that's supposed to be spooky. They love Egypt and Zoroastrianism in terms of let's make it our faith. Mm. Okay, number two. The concept is alien to the Old Testament. Even the thin evidence for hell in the New Testament looks vast in comparison to the Old Testament, which clearly has no concept of hell at all. Rather, scriptures like Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 18 suggest that death is simply a succession. Why did I not perish at birth or die as I came from the womb? For now I would be lying down in peace, I would be asleep and at rest. There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest, pretty self explanatory. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19 sounds even more skeptical about the possibility of an afterlife. Thoroughly observing that man's fate is like that of the animals. Same fate waits in both. As one dies, so does the so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage of the animal. Everything is meaningless. Even at this very start of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, verse sixteen to seventeen, and chapter two, verse nineteen, 
Adam and Eve's punishment for breaking God's instructions and eating the forbidden fruit was not to try to hellfire, but rather a promise that they will eventually die, for dust you are and to dust you will return. If Adam and Eve were at risk of being tormented forever, wouldn't they have been warned of that? Yeah! Why not mention hell when you explain the rules of the trees and what trees you can eat from and not eat from? And they didn't explain the concept of hell in Genesis after Adam and Eve apparently disobeyed the Lord. It gets stranger, it gets stranger and stranger. Why God, would God lie and tell them they were going back to the dust that his plan was really to lock them in a furnace? When Cain kills Abel, God sentences him to one of the lands and even gives him a mark to stop people from killing him. If judgment awaits in the afterlife, surely that was a bit counterproductive? I would say a lot counterproductive. Number one, hell is little more than a scare tactic. While religious like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists do not teach the doctrine of hell. Many churches and denominations still cling to the idea, but why? It cannot be denied that throughout history, the idea of hell has been used as a scare tactic to keep people in line. An 18th century preacher named Jonathan Edwards became famous for his fire brimstone sermon, sentenced in the hands of an angry God, which warned that God would cast wicked men into hell at any moment. So terrifying was the depiction of hell that other clergymen had to rush to the aid of distraught members of the congregation. Even in modern times, the theme of believe or you will go to hell is common, complete with vivid descriptions of grinding teeth, the shrieks of the damned, crawling worms over souls, and the odor of scorching flesh. Writing on the topic, one author describes having seen a young child screaming church confessing that he was afraid of hell. Others, such as Queen Mary, First of England have used the doctrine's excuse for perpetuating barbarism. Forcing a group of Protestants to be burned alive, she supposedly declared, as the souls of heretics are hereafter to be eternally burning in hell, there could be nothing more proper than for me to imitate the divine vengeance by burning them on earth. Like all scare tactics, the idea of hellfire can exert a powerful grip on believers. However, the biblical evidence for the horrifying doctrine is rather lacking. In fact, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus offers out his biblical proof of the doctrine of hell actually has the opposite message. At the end of the parable, Abraham declines to send Lazarus back to earth to warn sinners of some terrifying fate, when them in the afterlife argue that righteousness can only come from belief rather than fear some supernatural punishment. A mission is to turn the sprinkler on hell. And he and the and the writer and and the writer did an excellent job. for me to share so the smart thing I am going to do is share so let us get to it
It gets worse. Uh, this is listverse.com by Larry Jimenez, fact checked by Jamie Fratter. March 22nd, 2015. 10 plans Christian radicals have for America. A fundamentalist Christian ideology called Dominionism is currently infiltrating a segment of the Christian right. As a political movement, it seeks to overthrow democracy and transform America into a biblical theocracy. Also known as Christian Reconstructionism, it cuts across denominational lines but does not represent mainstream American Christianity. Many Christians even see it as a heresy and perversion of the Gospels. You know what? That is something I agree with those Christians on. Dominionism is a heresy. It's a satanic heresy. And yes, dominionism is a, an extreme perversion of the Gospels. I hate biblical theocracy. I hate Christian reconstructionism as well. Within the movement, our deferring views and its broad complexity should caution us from labeling it as a monolithic conspiracy. Liberals are often accused of exaggerating the dominionist dominionist threat and are called paranoid conspiracy theorists which is a damn lie but whatever the true members of those who hold this radical doctrine they exert a powerful influence on policymakers of the right wing number 10 the seven mountains mandate dominionists believe that jesus christ is not going to return till he has gained control of the world's nations through christians that is a damn lie this is how they interpret jesus command occupied till i come the dominionist blueprint for reclaiming america for christ is spelled out in the seven mountains mandate christian takeover and control of the seven mountains of society in quotations which are business government media arts entertainment education family and religion i call bullshit on that lance wall no a leading seven mountains theologians learns that Christians must install a theocracy governed by true apostles to battle Satan as Antichrist. And I say, fuck that shit. Wall now envisions the conquest of the seven mountains as a co covert operation. He said, a very small minority of people, as small as three to five percent, can control how the agenda works in a nation, thus create or dominate the culture. And I say, miss me with the bullshit. The Seven Mountains concept was first enunciated as a supposed revelation from God given simultaneously in 1975 to two quote-unquote generals of the faith, Lauren Cunningham of Youth with a Mission and Bill Bright of the Campus Crusade for Christ. They are crusading for bullshit. In all likelihood, they pull up, they plagiarized it from a TV talk by theologian Dr. Francis Schaefer. I thought Do Not Steal was one of the Ten Commandment agenda checklists. Mm. They are insensitive to hypocrisy, actually desensitized to it, even though Jesus is sensitive to hypocrisy because he hates it. But they don't. They love it. Wow. The mountains are portrayed as quote-unquote mind molders by which the rulers of darkness influence people leading to such trends as gay marriage, pornography, and abortion. Okay. Gay marriage 
is good. All, the marriage equality is good. Uh, ethical pornography is good. And abortions for those who need them are good. Number nine, capture the Republican Party. Perhaps most of us are wondering why, in spite of the Constitution, there seems to be a religious test for those seeking public office in the U.S., which I think sucks ass. The Republican Party, in particular, has made it an unwritten premise that a candidate's faith is a matter of public debate. I personally feel, this is me speaking off the cuff, is that regardless of faith or no faith, if you actually give a goddamn about people, if you actually give a fuck about people, I'm talking about disenfranchised, marginalized folks the most, then why the hell does it matter what you practice or don't practice regarding religion? I think atheists should be voted into public office just like theists. Local party meetings feature activists that determined to bring biblical principles into government. I, and my pun intended, says, hell no. How did the party of Lincoln become, in the words of Insider, more religious cult than a political organization? They just love embarrassing Jesus, don't they? To conquer the seven mountains, Dominionists are stealthily infiltrating the GOP and increasing their political influence. That is what I would say. Run, Forrest, run! Recent presidential candidates Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman have ties to Dominionist groups. I dislike them. And intelligently so. In 1979, GOP strategist Paul Weyrich politically mobilized factions of fundamentalist Pentecostal charismatic churches under the umbrella term moral majority. I call them the immoral majority. It was led by Reverend Jerry Falwell. Weyrich made no secret of its goal. We are talking about Christianizing America. We are talking about simply spreading the gospel in the political context. That makes me want to vomit. This is me speaking off the cuff. Again, I, that makes me want to vomit. Like, throw up. Because that is how nauseating I'm feeling right now about their perversities of Jesus. They just love perverting Jesus. The clout of the religious right became apparent in the 1980 elections when unseated liberal Democrats in the Senate helped propel Ronald Reagan to the White House. So they, they don't just want to enslave black people. They want to enslave other white people who are gullible. The, the, the so-called moral majority is no longer around, but Pat Robertson's Christian coalition has continued its work. We want as soon as possible to see a majority of the Republican Party in the hands of pro-family Christians. 
How are they pro-family when they ambush black families? Hispanic descent families, indigenous families, Asian families. Families of color. They are anti-family and there's nothing Christ-like about them. These are pharisaical wolves in sheep clothing. Robertson declared that time to he and his fellow pastors have schools and universities to train Christians how to run for public office and how to influence public and how to influence policy once in power. They can't teach me shit. Robertson named his institution Regent University because the students are destined to take over the government's crisis regents. No, they are the enemies of Jesus. I dare say they are the arch nemesis of the cross. Robertson himself made a losing bid for the presidency in 1988. I'm glad that shit bag lost. Robertson did not mince words. We are not going to stand for those coercive utopians in the Supreme Court and in Washington ruling over us anymore. We're not going to stand for it. We're going to say we want freedom in this country. We want power. Freedom means we are the slave owners and we're going to kunta kente you, chop off your foot, whip you, and make you call yourself Toby. And it's not just the black folks and indigenous and folks and Asian folks and Native American folks, Hispanic folks, they do that to, they do that to other white people. Racism is so bad, they target their own kind. Number eight, the end of pluralism. In a disturbing rant, Randall Terry, founder of the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue, said, I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. We have a biblical duty. We are called on by God to conquer this country. We don't want equal time. We don't want pluralism. Fuck you is my complete sentence to Randall Terry and I say fuck you to Operation Rescue you have no salvific power Jesus is ashamed of you you, you are the personifications of pure evil And y'all are ministers to society. The type of people that born kids should be kept away from. I We need equal time, not just one. 
we need pluralism, not just one. And good Samaritans don't hate, they love. Once the dominionists are in power, only one religion and lifestyle will be recognized, fundamentalist Christianity. Where's the Tylenol when I need it? Democracy and Christian nationalism are diametrically opposed. Now that, that is a fact. And it should stay that way forever. While theocrats will invoke the religious liberty guaranteed by the Constitution to further their, to further their agenda, they have no intention of keeping it when they win. So cherry pickers are defensive when it comes to people who don't cherry pick in ways that they like. Fuck theocracy. Gary North, one of the movement's ideological founders, made their goal clear. A Bible-based social, political, and religious order which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. Remember, when they say enemies of God, they're talking about themselves, so they're projecting and deflecting their thinking them to hell onto innocent people because they're a bunch of guilty-ass motherfuckers. They view the system that treats everybody equally as the greatest obstacle in their plans. But if you're a Christian, you're supposed to embrace people who may not think like you, live like you, or love like you, because that's one of the basic tenets of Jesus. They have nothing in common with Jesus. Because they go to war against Jesus. Secular humanism, which is awesome, and all systems that bypass biblical knowledge will have to go. Hell no. Hell no, hell no, hell no, hell no. And I say, hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. Y'all can kiss our asses. 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 And plus, these are the same people that lack biblical knowledge because they're rotten milk. They're not fresh meat. The us versus them mentality that treats the rest of the non-Christian world as satanic will make pluralism impossible. I love pluralism and following Jesus means no us versus them because Jesus is for compassion. Therefore, Jesus opposes narcissism. Isn't that why he was killed? Narcissistic religious leaders, Pharisees, had him assassinated 
And they are so spiritually immature, they can't even apply the concept of assassination to Jesus. Rick Joyner admits, at first it may seem like totalitarianism, which it is, as Lord will destroy the Antichrist spirit now dominating the world. Oh, so they know that they are the Antichrist spirits because their arrogance is that massive. So God's wrath will dominate them because they're trying to do God's job for quote-unquote him, as they stupidly say. Um, you're not supposed to dominate the world. You're supposed to be a light-based blessing to the world. But they are the spiritual darkness of the world that they complain about. But he assures those willing to be deluded that the kingdom of Christ will move toward increasing liberty. That would be liberty as defined by a fascist dictionary somewhere. And remember, if liberty is one-sided, it's not liberty at all. Number seven, undermining the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, the bedrock upon which pluralism thrives, will obviously have to be abrogated or else it's reinterpreted under the dominions. In this place will be a government based on Old Testament laws. The law of Moses features, among other things, number one, the death penalty for idolaters, an example, non-Christians. Number two, the likelihood of the reinstitution of slavery. Number three, abolition of the income tax in favor of the tithing system. Number four, elimination of the prison system in favor of the system of restitution for non-capital offenses. So, the, so here's the thing. They love Jim Crow. They love atheist discrimination. They love capital punishment as their addiction. They want people to be house poor and they want people to be members of the working poor. And They want their greed to be sanctified because they love sanctified greed. They love to Christianize, religionize, and spiritualize both sin and iniquity. That's what these Pharisees love to do. And they want to go back to the so-called good old days when they can spread their deathly germs to Native Americans and to try to perpetuate more racism against them than they did centuries ago. Dominionists themselves are divided on how to apply these archaic biblical laws to modern America. Not all of them are keen on reintroducing slavery, but some do think that its legalization would be a good thing. They're a bunch of racist shit shows. While the majority support the death penalty, they differ on the method of execution. How can they reconcile that with the ex Roman execution of Jesus? 
How would that make Jesus feel? They don't give a damn about how Jesus feels. Because they don't give a fuck about Jesus. Strangely, though, polygamy was permitted in ancient Israel. They defined marriages between one man and one woman. Although some of them would love to have multiple wives, see, Muslims aren't the only polygamists. Yeah, we're polygamists too because our Bible sanctions us. It is also unclear what they will do in the quote-unquote jubilee year when a strange property is supposed to revert to its original owners. So... They value white celebration and BIPOC degradation. They value white might, which also means they value Hispanic and Asian smite. Will they give back the land to Native Americans, the Christian ones, of course? Will they return Hawaii to the Hawaiians? Now, those are what I call compassionate questions. The Christian right, I call them the Christian wrong, the Christian dead wrong, has the means to exploit loopholes through the American Center for Law and Justice, ACLJ, its legal advocacy arm. Advocating evil is evil in and of itself. Hmm. Founded by Pat Robinson and armed with a $30 million annual budget, it seeks to overturn rulings of right of horse like Roe versus Wade. I am so glad that because of the success of the Democratic Party, it's going to be codified soon and very soon. So they're just going to have to suck it up and deal with it. It is also noteworthy that ACLJ supported the Bush administration in holding Guantanamo detainees without charges and without trial. These are the same people who know not who the biblical Jesus is because they never spiritually met him. In a public policy polling survey released on February 25, 2015, Astonishing 57% of Republicans favor abandoning the Constitution to make the U.S. a Christian nation. Only 30% are opposed, 13% are not sure. So the 30% are thinking correctly. The 13% need to get on board with opposition to make it 43. And 47% of those Republicans can suck my dick. Number six. Death penalty for gays and rebellious teens. Being a worshiper of false gods, example, non-Christian, is not the only capital crime under Mosaic law, besides murder and rape. The meanest believe those deserving the death penalty include homosexuals, children who struck their parents, brides who were unchaste before marriage, juvenile delinquents, psychics, false prophets, as example, that's what they call psychics, psychics, adulterers, and blasphemers. Let me see here. These same dominionists, a lot of them are gay. A lot of them were children who did strike their parents. A lot of them were brides who were unchaste before marriage, including the grooms. A lot of these dominionists are juvenile delinquents. A lot of these dominionists actually go 
secretly see psychics, the ones that they pretend to think of as false prophets, a lot of these dominionists are adulterers and a lot of these dominionists are blasphemers. So they actually want to kill people just like them. How is that loving Jesus all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because it's fucking not. Executions would be made public with full participation of the community like square dances and quilting bees. So if I'm a Christian, I should be kind-hearted. Therefore, I shouldn't be a shit stain. Right. Gary North prefers stoning as a method of killing because stones cost nothing readily available. Didn't Jesus say if you live by the sword, you die by the sword? Jesus would say to them, if you live by the stone, you die by the stone. North laments that our humanist society paints the Mosaic law as barbaric. The Mosaic law is barbaric. Of course it is. The humanist society is correct on that one. He himself has no problems executing rebellious teens. The integrity of the family must be maintained by the threat of death. As a Christian, you sh you're not supposed to be... a shit can. You're supposed to have nobility pertaining to character. What's more, North says that those accusing a suspect of a capital crime must be among the executioners. As a Christian, you're not supposed to be horrible. As a Christian, you're supposed to be honorable. For citizens to arm themselves in self-defense is a mark of their judicial sovereignty. North asserts something gun control advocates want to take away. He extends his concept of judicial sovereignty to executions. He doesn't want people to delegate the task to agents of the state. Participation in public executions is an act of citizenship. As a Christian, despicability should not be a part of your heart. How does this system propose to deal with perjury and false accusation? Perjury would be considered a crime against the accused, not against the court as in the present system. False witnesses will suffer the same penalties supposed to be imposed on the accused had they been found guilty. North believes that the mosaic system of justice will actually reduce perjury in court. As a Christian, you're supposed to be benevolent because you should believe that God is omnibenevolent. But they think that God is omnibenevolent. That's why they are malevolent. Mm. Number five, historical revisionism. David Barton is a pseudo-historian obsessed with alter, altering historical facts to portray America as a Christian nation founded on biblical principles. This makes him a darling of the wrong they like to call themselves the right, with enthusiastic Mike Huckabee proclaiming him America's greatest historian who should be writing the curriculum for the schools. Fuck Mike Huckabee. 
How could we suggest it in jest, presumably, that all Americans should be forced at gunpoint to listen to Barton? I say and I say again, mother fuck my cockatoo. To Glenn Beck, he is the most important man in America. That is a crock of shit. Such accolades come in the wake of Barton's best-selling books, which claim that the founding fathers were devout Christians inspired by colonial preachers to found a society based on the biblical model. Barton teaches that America's constitutional government was patterned after the ancient Hebrew Federative Republic. He accuses academics of hiding these truths from the average citizen. I hope they burn in the hell that they preach about. In response, academics and even fellow conservatives have exposed Barton's lies and errors. Barton is caught distorting or even inventing quotes placed on the lips of Deist founding fathers to prove his point. One blatant example of Barton's deception is his quote of John Adams' letter to Benjamin Rush in 1809. In it, Adams says, There is no authority, civil or religious. There could be no legitimate government. But what is administered by this Holy Ghost? But what is administered by this Holy Ghost? There could be no salvation without it. All without it is it is rebellion and perdition, or in more orthodox words, damnation. Barton makes it sound like Adams was proposing a government led by the Holy Ghost, but Barton has left out the last part of the quote in which Adams mocks the very notion. Although this is all artifice and cunning in the secret original in the heart, yet they all believe it so sincerely that they would lay down their lives under the axe of the fiery forgot for it. Alas, the poor, weak, ignorant, duke human nature. Barton makes the torturous argument that the Constitution, which never once mentions God, is in fact a godly document because it makes a passive reference to the Declaration of Independence, which does mention a creator, a deist creator, alas, for Barton. Barton was also forced to admit that he fabricated out of thin air a supposed quote from James Madison, which the staunch advocate of church-state church separation was made to beseech Americans to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. David Barton is a propagandist masquerading as a historian. Though exposed as a fraud, he remains unrepentant. Repentance is a hallmark for actual Christians. And actual Christians worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, you can't be a Christian and be a lying sack of shit. And by the way, I am for church-state separation. I'm for the separation of both church and state. I am. So David Barton is like Satan masquerading as angel of light, just like the Dominionists are. Oh, this is the worst one, y'all. Number four, abolition of Medicare and Social Security. Oh, they also want to abolish Medicaid, by the way. So that makes them ungodly and unholy. It makes them bad. It makes them vile. It makes them sinister. It makes them crooked. It makes them demonic. And it makes them devilish. 
They are both diabolical, depraved degenerates. That's what they are. The meanest based their economics on Deuteronomy chapter 28, the blessings and cursings chapter of the Pentateuch. They believe that wealth is a sign of God's favor and poverty and illness are visitations of, quote unquote, his displeasure and wrath. The poor and sick deserve their lot. It is God's way to prick their conscience and provoke introspection. Therefore, governments who seek to alleviate their plight are contravening God's will. Poverty is not seen as a problem to be solved. That is, this is why Dominus view Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as evil programs that take money from others to give to those being punished. So, these Dominus are Jesus's to Jesus. In a 700 Club interview, economics professor Dr. Walter Williams gave this rationalization. I think Christians should recognize that charity is good. I mean, charity when you reach into your pocket to help your fellow man for medical care or for food or to give them housing. What the government is doing to help these older citizens is not charity at all. It is theft. That is the government that is the government's using power to confiscate property that belongs to one American and give or confiscate their money and provide services for another set of Americans whom it does not belong. So let me get this straight. Jesus is for the least of these, but dominionists are for the most of these. The, the names of the dominionists are not written in the book of life. Therefore, they are casting themselves into the lake of fire, which means that those within Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they'll be in heaven while the Dominus will experience weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. The righteous creed, the so-called righteous creed of quote-unquote personal responsibility has no place for such economic safety nets. If you die of hunger, that's your fault. Or in the case of senior citizens, your children's or family's fault for not taking care of you. So Jesus is for the elderly, children, women, the poor. He healed every disease and sickness according to the New Testament. And Jesus is about letting the oppressed go free and recovery. of what was once lost and Jesus is for the underdogs but apparently they think that Jesus should be ashamed of himself for taking a stand and taking a knee For victims of injustice. So overall, they dislike Jesus, they hate Jesus, and they disrespect Jesus.
If on the other hand you become filthy rich, well, the Lord must be mighty proud of you. So for the government to lay more taxes on you to even out the playing field is an abomination. It is God's intention that the rich get richer. Charismatic pastor Larry Huck predicts an end-time transfer of wealth to blessed Christians who are destined to become God's bankers. The main is his promotion of laissez-faire economics of, main, of minimum government intervention in business and the repudiation of its licensing and regulatory powers can thus be seen as self-serving. I I have problems um, with all this and I can easily tell you why. Um, Jesus' parables condemn rich fools. Jesus wasn't wealthy himself. He was poor. He was a carpenter. He relied on the kindness of strangers. He never had his own place. He stayed in folks' homes overnight, sleepovers. And the disciples, along with the women around Jesus and them, they weren't in palaces. They were not in luxury vehicles they were not in luxurious homes they did not have luxurious bank accounts they were peasants they were all not in the one percent jesus wore regular clothing jesus wasn't a living large big willy style guy Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. And he says that in scripture. They have a habit of giving Jesus the middle fingers. Number three, abolition of public education. Christian theocrats are aware that they cannot hope to spread their miseducation through the present public school system which propagates secular knowledge and values. In its place, they want a Christian-sponsored educational system that will ensure that children are indoctrinated into fundamentalism, have daily prayers, teach creationism, do away with sex education, and propagate David Barton's false history. Do away with sex education? These are the same people that have paid sex with sex workers, especially while married. Jesus wouldn't want Christianity to be drilled into people's heads because then that throws out the biblical concept of free will, which he was all in favor of. So they think that evangelism means scare tactics, even though the Bible says you're not supposed to have a spirit of fear when you really think about it. So I'm going to scare you into being Christian. That means that they're not truly Christian because they're only pretending to be Christian so you won't shoot them dead. 
But apparently God is not pleased with that in the end, quote unquote, he shouldn't be. They're not praying for the least of these, not, they're not praying for how to help the least of these. Teaching creationism, creationism is scientifically inaccurate. Why is it okay for any religion to be scientifically inaccurate? And why is it okay to promote Afrocess education when it doesn't work? Most of the people who are taught it, they're still fornicating. They're still masturbating. They're still viewing pornography. They're still indulging in erotica. So these dominionists, are basically devils. I hope to see the day when, as in the early days of our country, we don't have public schools wrote the Reverend Jerry Falwell, the churches will have taken them over again and Christians will be running them. Michelle Bachman once started a charter school to replace the quote-unquote godless secular schools but was forced out of the board of directors when she prophesied the students. I'm so glad they forced her out. And Jerry Falwell is a trash bag. Michelle Bachman, she's a dumpster. Before a takeover happens, Christian parents are urged to take their children out of public schools to be homeschooled instead. A glimpse into a Dominionist homeschool gives us an idea on what American kids could expect to learn once Dominionists have taken over. Government. All governments are ordained by God, but none compared to government by God theocracy. Economics, we present free enterprise economics without apology and point out the dangers of communism, socialism, and liberalism to the well-being of people across the globe. Science, the universe is a direct creation of God and refutes the man-made idea of evolution. Now, evolution is actually real. Socialism is good. Liberalism is good. Communism is bad. Duh. And like I said, Theocracy is terrible. And to homeschool indoctrination, ugh. I I feel I I feel compassion for the children. Math, unlike the modern math theorists who believe that mathematics is the creation of man, thus arbitrary and relative, we believe that the laws of mathematics are the creation of God and thus absolute. These books provide mathematics facts that are not burdened with modern theories such as set theory. So they're, so the dominionists are wrong when it comes to government, economics, science, math, and every other area of life. Number two, female subservience. We read in Ephesians chapter five to 22, let women be subjected to husbands as to the Lord. This forms the base of women's roles in the proposed theocracy. Simply put, it will mark the end of gender equality and women's rights. 
<sighs> they are pure evil villains. And they are devils in person. They are complete monsters. They are the most vile and worst kind of villains. These evildoers called Dominionists are completely wicked. Doing, when it comes to Dominionists, doing evil for them is as natural as breathing. These wrongdoers called Dominionists have zero redeeming qualities. Gender equality is good and women's rights are good. Then they then it then the article says women will be relegated to the home pleasing their husbands, taking care of the kids and making more babies, or as a critic put it, dishwashing, suckling, and sex. So these dominionists commit atrocious actions and they have no regret and no remorse for their spiritual crimes and societal crimes. The Dominionist newsletter shall set and report deplore the situation in America today. Devastating curse of women ruling over men is getting the press it deserves today. Our nation is under judgment as the home goes, so does the nation. So these dominionists are distinguished by their complete lack of empathy, as well as their complete disregard for human life, as well as for all other forms of life itself. Young girls are taught that their place is in the home and that any desire for a college degree or a job outside the home is prideful and sinful. Homeschooler Dog Phillips says, Daughters by no means are not daughters by no means are not meant to be independent. They're not they're not to act outside the scope of their father and then later their husbands. As long as they're under the authority of their fathers, fathers have the ability to nullify or not the oaths and the vows. Daughters can't just go out independently and say, I'm going to do this or marry whoever I want. So dominionists are truly irredeemable. Once married, they're encouraged to pop out some kids to swell the ranks of Christian soldiers. So says Leah Smith in her to-do list for Dominion, where she prompts Christian mothers to get busy and outstrip the Muslim birth rate, six kids per household average. Besides household skills, girls should learn apologetics, theology, and evangelism. Smith tells ladies to go back to being women with joy and celebration as slaves of men. So dominionists don't believe in the biblical concept of atonement when it comes to themselves. Lastly, number one, World War III. If dominionism poses a threat to American democracy, it is even more dangerous to world peace and stability. Dominionists taking over the U.S. would give America's nuclear stockpile to religious fundamentalists with an apocalyptic mentality. And recent news has shown us 
that religious fanaticism and military firepower are lethal mix. Uh, consider Lieutenant General William Boykin, who could be described as a Christian jihadist. He believes in holy war against Islam with the U.S. military as God's army. He reports seeing demonic entities and photos of fighting in Somalia, enemies who will only be defeated if we come against them in the name of Jesus. Incredibly, this intolerant warmonger became Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. With people like Boykin in command positions, World War III just might be the mother of all religious wars. With a mindset that regards Israel as an important player in the prophetic end times drama, the Christian right is also against a peaceful resolution of the Arab-Israeli Arab conflict. Palestinians are illegal occupants of the land God gave to, quote-unquote, his chosen people, and there could never be a compromise, a two-state solution. So, what I've read to you just shows that they are, that these dominions are unpleasant. They, dominionists display no sense of remorse towards those who they have hurt, nor do they express any empathy for others as well. Dominionists are truly vile characters who do not have any regrets of their iniquitous actions because they love being pure evil. Dominionists can also self-righteously justify overthrowing foreign governments not Christian enough to their liking. Since the U.S. already has a long history of such interventions, only a change in rationale from political to religious is needed. The gap between the U.S. and Europe may also widen with Christians mistrusting the secular and irreligious tendencies of their transatlantic allies. The end of the European partnership would have detrimental effects on global economic, on global economy and security. Now you understand more of why I can't stand those people. Because actually, they're not people. They are irredeemable. Dominionists are completely beyond redemption. Dominionists consistently are rejecting the chance to go back and delve deeper into God's holy boundaries. because they are addicted to brutality, something that Jesus can't stand, among other things. That is why I'm going to end this episode.